Welcome to Black Writer Therapy, a podcast where Black women writers are invited to sit on the proverbial couch, have a cup of tea, and share the stories behind the stories, and what it really takes to write books about Black women in an industry that still prefers white as the default. I'm your host, published author and unlicensed therapist, Alishine. Black Writer Therapy is now in session. Dion Ford is a National Endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellow and the co-editor of the anthology Slavery's Descendants. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Lit Hub, New Jersey Monthly Magazine, Rumpus, and Ebony, and won awards from the National Association of Black Journalists and the Newswomen's Club of New York. She lives in New Jersey with her family, and her memoir, Go Back and Get It, is her first book. Hi, welcome to Miss Dion Ford. This is your session of Black Writer Therapy. Thank you so much for agreeing to to sit on my proverbial couch and discuss your debut memoir, Go Back and Get It. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm so excited. Wow. Well, this is a first for my podcast. I have only had fiction writers. So you are the first nonfiction memoirs that has been on the couch. So yay. <laughs> and thank you. I mean, really, you had me doing homework, right? Like I I write fiction. So reading fiction and, and you know getting ready for a show is like this isn't really work. This is just a hobby, you know? But it's like when I when I dove into your memoir, I was just like, wait a minute, girl, we're gonna have to pull out the the letters behind your name and actually use them. This woman has you working. What's <laughs> happening here? So I mean, thank you. All the great gems and pearls of wisdoms. I can't wait to get into the conversation with you. But before I do that. I have to ask you the question that I ask every guest. And I don't think that it's asked enough. So how are you healing today, Dion? Oh, wow. What a great question. You know how I am healing today is being accepting of my, or at least trying to be more accepting of my 50 four-year-old body. I think as a woman, I've spent a lot of time (laughs) worrying about how I look to the world Mm -hmm. and judging myself on that. And now at 53, mother of two children that, you know, came from my body, I really had to I'm having to look at myself a little bit differently. And so, and also be more accepting of what my body can do physically. Right. Um, I love to dance and I have felt really challenged around how to do that lately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And last night I took 
an African dance class at a school in my town that my kids have taken dance classes at. I've taken dance class at. I was so worried that I wasn't going to be able to keep up and all that. And you know what? I went and I just had so much fun. It's uh -huh. the best I've felt in my body in a really long time. Wow. So I think that's how I'm healing today is <laughs> bringing my full self to that African dance class and letting myself do my thing. I absolutely love that. And as women, we are always thinking about ourselves, not in terms of how we see us, but we are always thinking in terms of everyone else. It's so it's kind of kismet that you would say how we don't give ourselves permission to see all the beauty, all the grace, all the magnificent aspects that we have because we're so busy trying to make sure that X, Y, and Z, what they're seeing is what they need and want to see. So we project that. Absolutely. And, and so reclaiming our, our space, our bodies through dance, through meditation, through writing, through rituals, through whatever is such an important, important part of our healing journey. So thank you yeah. for sharing that with us. Yeah, it was, it was divine. I got so much out of it. I was nourished in more ways than just physically. It was really a good treat for me. So I, I did the whole shaving of my head and I felt myself releasing a lot of stress and angst from the traveling and bringing my kid home and all the things. And it just felt so good to just take time, you know, get all of the hair off and wash it and oil it. And I was just like, you know, as I flushed my hair down the toilet because, you know, I'm Southern. And we cannot have hair floating around in the world. You know, <laughs> I can't do that. And it was just such a release. So yes, we heal in, in very different and wonderful ways. And all things can be healing if we do so with intention. I agree. Okay. So that moves us really beautifully into the first segment of our show, which is called Intentional Writing. But before we get there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have my mental health consultant Lisa Williamson Rosenberg pop in again, probably more for me than for the listeners, because your your memoir is just that available. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but it feels right. Like it's that available for readers to fall into. So I, I wanna have her come on to be like. I'm going to try not to fangirl, but Dion, okay. like when I do, okay. just leave me, just let me have my moments, okay? And I hate when it happens too, because it's so embarrassing for me. Just, you did such amazing work on this Thank book. You. So I have like one more question. You're sure. a journalist, yes? That's my training, yes. Okay. So was it difficult going from journalistic style writing to creative nonfiction or have you always done like creative nonfiction in your journalism world? That's actually a very good question. So I think, you know, I've always been writing since I was a little girl and I mm -hmm. always wrote creatively. Like I always wanted to write, I would write radio shows with my friend. <laughs> like we would come up with crime shows and tape ourselves and, 
So I've always loved to tell stories. And, but as a journalist, you know, I was trained to, I was trained to keep myself out of the story. Mm -hmm. So in approaching this, there, I, I did have to really consider how I would thread my story with the research that I was finding and mm -hmm. um, how I executed my great-great-grandmother and my great-grandmother's stories. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, yeah, it did take some reconsidering how to do that because, yeah, as a journalist, I, I was not really comfortable with inserting myself in the story, but I have to say that I am appreciating as we continue to evolve, you know, in the profession, other journalists having more permission to insert <laughs> themselves when it's appropriate. So I've been, I drew from that to noticing that kind of shift in, in reportage and kind of giving myself permission in that way, you know. I'm so glad you did. It was such an amazing read the way, like I said, I've, I'm a fiction writer and I absolutely adore fiction, but I also love creative nonfiction. And so reading your, your memoir read like a novel. It was strange you to know me. that it was, <laughs> that it was not a novel. And yet I don't, I don't know if it was because like your chapters had titles or I don't know what, but it read like a novel and it could very well have been the insertion of you that ran through the research that tied all of it together to make it feel like one cohesive experience. Does that make sense or am I? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I mean, I'm over here like giddy with excitement because you know I feel like that's like the highest praise to <laughs> have you know a memoir read like a novel at least for me you know I, I certainly wanted to try and write something that did have that sense of plotting and what's going to happen mm -hmm. next and you know that kind of sense of urgency too yes so I really, really appreciate that. And, you know, of course, like any memoir is just a slice of a, of a person's story mm -hmm. and, this, and even only one portion of their self, you know, right, so right. Kind of had to offer up some, whatever version, you know, that we were going to follow. And I, I really appreciate hearing that it, it, you know, was evocative and 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 did have that sense so yeah that's high praise thank you well look at me giving high praise where it's due because it was really just a beautiful experience for me as a reader and even though memoirs cover just only like a like you said just a slice of a person's life or self that they are, are giving to the world because of all of the historical content and the, the back story of your family, I feel like I know all of you. And I, I'm like, was that intentional? <laughs> did, did you know that it would read in a way that doing it, I guess providing all of the information and, and, and the research on your family would also read into who you are as a woman right now 
Wow. Um, I guess I looked at it. No, I didn't really think about the the family so much revealing stuff about me to the reader as much as I did want to delve into that to reveal something about me to myself, to mm. understand myself. So I guess I really wasn't thinking about the effect that that would have on the reader. So that that's actually a bonus too, because it certainly had that effect on me that, mm-hmm. you know, really digging into who they had been, how they lived did give me a broader sense of myself. Yeah. Which I really appreciate. So yeah, yeah. I, now it seems kind of obvious that that would be the case. <laughs> but I, I, I was only really focusing on how it would help me, you know, generally. So I'm glad wow. that an effect on you. And, and that's when you know that what you're doing is intentional writing. Ha ha, you see how I'm segueing here? So (laughs) they learned about three years ago that the word intention has a medical definition as well. And it is the process or the healing process of a wound. And I had no idea that it meant that. And I decided, okay, well, the word intention or any aspect of the word is only ever going to mean for me the healing process of a wound because we are all here on a healing journey. No one is not healing. Whether or not they acknowledge it is a moot point. We are all healing. And so I decided I wanted to definitely have a segment on my show that highlighted not only how writing is a cathartic process for the writer, but it becomes a conduit of healing for the reader. And so because your debut memoir is Go Back and Get It. By the way, great title. (laughs) Great title. Sankofa means to go back and get it. Or it is not wrong to go back for that which you have forgotten. I love the word Sankofa. Me too. I love that you gave it to us in a way that was kind of like, girl, go back and get it. That's how I read your title, girl, go back and get it because it's yours to get. And then getting into the book and going back to get it. You went back and got a lot. Tell me, please, how was that process of researching looking for your enslaved people. You kept saying that when you go seeking your enslaved people, you need to be prepared to to learn a lot about their enslavers. Yeah. How is that? Yeah. I mean, um, ultimately, extremely satisfying. Mm -hmm. I'm so, so thrilled that I kind of put meat on the bones, I guess, as it were, of my grandmothers, you know, mm-hmm. who've been enslaved mm-hmm. and that I know things about them, that I've, you know, read words that my great-grandmother Josephine wrote, you know, that I got to know that her mother was seeking to find her family. All that mm-hmm. was just so gratifying and fulfilling. It was also painful to mm-hmm. 
have to sift through their enslavers, also my family, in order to find those things. Yeah. It was difficult, but also parallel to my own experience mm-hmm. of, you know, being a survivor of sexual assault by a member of my family. So ultimately, I guess then that there's like another circle of that. It even gave me more support, more of a sense of the deep resources that my great, great grandmother must have had to Mm. lived for so long to have continued to seek her family that she'd been separated from and to find ways to, you know, provide home for her children, you know, whether that was through like just a spiritual life, which she seemed to have a very rich and deep and committed one Mm -hmm. that she passed on to her daughter, at least, you know, probably other members of her family as well but also through property you know so so yes so much bittersweet but mostly sweet because I I because I got to learn about her and about them so yeah the process was quite (laughs) quite a a roller coaster of emotions that I'm so grateful and feel privileged to have been on (laughs) Yeah, that's par for course when when we're doing you know the work of excavating ourselves from what we have been told we are to really figuring out what and who we are, and going back to get it from an ancestral perspective. You you said this book was healing for you because you were able to recover stories of women in in your family who were enslaved as well as let go of your shame of being molested as a child. And you did an amazing job of dropping and weaving that hurt, that trauma throughout the entire text of the memoir. It felt like a parallel to not having control enough of one's own body be able to keep it where you want it, to keep it doing what you want it to do. And so was that an actual, like, is that where the parallels came in when you were reading through your ancestral grandmother's plural possessive, their story? I mean, Mm. she had six children with the man who enslaved her. And you know, some of those children were during slavery, some of them were after. So absolutely the, you know, she was not in control of her decisions. So it was from that actual Mm -hmm. reality, you know, that enslaved women were raped. Yeah. And she was, and, and that's, you know, history, I can see when I look in my my father's skin, you know, which is so fair. 
So I, I think I was really thinking about that, especially because then there were children that she had with the same enslaver after slavery ended. Right. And so I felt that it spoke to the particularness of family sexual assault, you know, where for me, I, I have fond feelings on the one hand and memories of my abuser before mm -hmm. the abuse, you know, and, and of course, you know, this, uh, these other feelings that I can't reconcile with, right. with those. And so it just made me think that when you are in such close circumstances with, with people who abuse you, but also might do something positive for you, how complex, you know, it is to, to sift through all this reality. Mm -hmm. So, so that's where, where I was thinking about the parallels. Okay. That this is the best time to bring Lisa in because she's here and she's ready. And we're, we're hitting into some territory. So I'm going to go ahead and bring in my mental health consultant because as my intro says, I am the host and unlicensed therapist here. And Lisa Williamson Rosenberg is a licensed psychotherapist who specializes in trauma and, and healing in that area. So I'm going to go ahead and invite Lisa in for a bit. If that's okay with you. Yeah, that's great. Hi, Hi Ella, how are you? How are you? Hi, Ella. Hi. How is it going? Good. It's going really well. Thank so. you so much for agreeing to, oh. uh, to be with us. We've been kind of chatting a little bit. And we've okay. just gotten into the meat and potatoes of, of the memoir talking about the, we're at the part of writing. And so we're talking about how the sexual violence that was perpetrated against Tempe, how that paralleled with the, the sexual violence that that Dion survived. And I thought, well, maybe now is the right time to bring in Lisa. Mm -hmm. And so you have obviously read the book. You were saying how you had these feelings of prior to the abuse for your for the abuser. And then the feelings after, and it's difficult to reconcile. And then, of course, thinking of Tempe mm -hmm. and how she had these children. And I love that you say for, by, or with, because it's not clear. Mm -hmm. The enslaver, while she was enslaved, but also she went on to have children for, by, or with him afterwards. And that, so how does one like reconcile that? And I have this little part from your book, but my danger, my betrayer was in my family. Then there is the ultimate betrayal of ourselves and our own body. How do you reconcile when it's family that's causing the hurt, the trauma? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've only, you know, I, I 
only know how I've done it for myself, which has been different things at different times in my life. You know, mm -hmm. there was a certain time in my life where I could have absolutely no contact with my abuser, which meant that I sometimes didn't have contact the way I would like to with other people in my family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then there were times when I could have more casual contact that it didn't feel you know, that it was neither here nor there for me. Um, I've gone back and forth, you know? Um, and I, so, and I, I have so many people in my life who have experienced the same thing. Some who cut off all ties. Yep. Who have some variation like me back and forth. Others who have very close connection, those people, normal, the, one, the people that I'm thinking of who continue to have closer connection, had more, had, had help from their families early on, earlier on mm -hmm. to address what happened. And... I'm thinking of one person whose abuser also then went on to try and and continues to try to make some kind of, you know, restitution hmm. to this person through financial support with therapy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there was a real acknowledgement by the entire yeah. family of what had happened mm -hmm. and a real good faith effort by mm -hmm. the abuser to write you know, this. So that makes sense to me, you know, mm -hmm. but it's just so, I, it's just so different for everybody. And so I, at this point in my life, just give myself grace to mm -hmm. like be where I'm at, at that moment, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Alisa, chime in, please. First of all, Dion, I respect so much that you said, I try to give myself grace because especially in this day and age of social media, when people are telling their stories, mm -hmm. it comes with so much judgment. Did she forgive him or did she not forgive him? Or how did, you know, everybody sort of has an opinion on, girl, you better tell, you know, and there is no right. The number one thing is to have a sense of your own value and sometimes that comes mm. from your family and the hardest part is when the the victim is meant to keep her mouth shut and not upset other family members because yeah. i've also seen that you know the abuser is seated beside her at the thanksgiving table and if the victim says, you know, I think I'm not going to come to that event. Everyone says you're ruining it for other people. And also like there are moments where the pain is going to be at the forefront and there are moments where the pain is going to be way in the back of your mind. And there are also times where the pain is pushed it there. You write in your book, you write about AA, you write about addiction. And I think for so many so many women who have struggled and who have been sexually molested, there are tools that may not be adaptive, alcohol, food, drugs that, that, you know, people reach for to, to numb the pain when it's, 
when people have said, stop upsetting other people. Okay. Well, then I will address it in, in this other way that hurts me as opposed to having a voice. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I admire kind of all the different steps you've taken. I mean, mm-hmm. Dion, you've seen clergy, you've talked to therapists, you've been to 12 step programs and you've taken on this unbelievable journey that I think helps heal, not just you and your pain, but also so many of us, you know, to go back and look at what is this sexual abuse. That's one of the pillars of our country's success. Mm. And maybe it was a survival thing that, that forced you back in time. But I think so many of us can benefit. You know, no, no. And I, I do appreciate the, the, vulnerability I think most people associate being vulnerable with being weak and Mm -hmm. I've always thought it's the most courageous act any person can can Mm -hmm. engage in is Mm -hmm. allowing themselves to be vulnerable and to become intimately connected to self intimacy Mm -hmm. into me I see and that Mm -hmm. is is the connection Mm -hmm. that allows us to become vulnerable and courageously so, and you do that in so many ways. You say the men in my family had gone off to war, but I was the one diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And you talk about PTSD and what works or what worked for you earlier with therapeutic measures. You talk about the EMDR was so effective and so mm-hmm. helpful. And I love how yeah. how you talk about it. So could you expound a little bit more on that process for you? And then Lisa, mm-hmm. if you could tell us why it works that way. When I'm a, I, I, I am an EMDR pr- practitioner too. So yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, That's so something you I tell also us do. Why, yeah. mm-hmm. And she'll tell us how. Yeah. So I, I, um, was I sought out EMDR after I'd already been in talk therapy mm-hmm. for many years. I started talk therapy when I was about 19 or 20. So, you know, I was, I had two kids and I'd been doing therapy for over a decade at that point. But my therapist who was not working with me at the time because I'd moved out of New York City into New Jersey and I actually didn't have a therapist at the time. But I called her, you know, kind of in crisis and told her what was going on. And she told me that she, it sounded like it was a dissociative episode Mm -hmm. and she, and that she had heard of EMDR. She wasn't licensed in it herself but that she was hearing, you know, good things about it. It was kind of new at that point. This must mm-hmm. have been like 2003, yeah. 2004. Okay. So mm-hmm. probably wasn't more than a decade or so old at that yeah, point. Yeah, it was like 1987-ish, 1986. Francine Shapiro, like, start, yeah, came okay. up with it. Right. So I guess it's okay to call it kind of new, right? It was new. No, 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 no it was definitely it was definitely kind of, it was like, what is that weird thing? Is it hypnosis? Is it what? Huh? Yeah. So, 
so she she told me about it that she knew about it but that she wasn't you know able to do it but mm-hmm. you know that I sh- I, I might want to seek out someone I was able to find somebody in my town mm-hmm. um, Lisa will tell you our our town we've got like so many therapists and authors <laughs> so many yeah therapists, there was authors journalists yeah. yeah so I did find somebody and I really only saw her a few times but mm-hmm. it was the process was so effective I mean mm-hmm. I felt I really felt I, I, I really felt the benefits of it, like mm-hmm. immediately. <laughs> so I know other people go, you know, yeah. more often, but that, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. I felt almost, I'm almost like completely better after one session, mm-hmm. really remarkable. And, you know, as I describe in the book, she, she really, she just used a pencil, you know, yeah. um, and, and it was, it was really, really, really remarkable. I definitely felt a huge shift mm-hmm. in my own experience of myself mm-hmm. after that. So, I'm so do you mind me. finding that passage in your book while Lisa is sure. telling us why EMDR works and that you could read for mm-hmm. us, please? Okay. So here's the thing. What I should say for our listeners, EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And what it is, is the, in the most basic sense is, you know, the eye movements we use during REM sleep. Like Mm -hmm. if you've ever seen your dog or a baby or somebody asleep and, and you can see their eyes going back and forth really fast. We all do that when we dream. When you dream, your eyes are going, And your brain is working stuff out and processing and doing its own thing without you telling it, don't think about that, think about this. So a woman named Francine Shapiro, who was already a pretty famous psychologist, was, you know, something was troubling her and she had been going for a walk and she noticed, she was kind of looking up and she noticed her eyes moving back and forth really quickly. And, you know, just fast forward a bunch of years she and other psychologists figured out a way to access the eye movements we use during REM sleep while you're awake. And while the practitioner is basically asking you to bring up a traumatic memory, the negative belief that you have about yourself, you know, it was my fault. I asked for it. I'm dirty. You know, I'm shameful. I'm unworthy. I'm not lovable. And, you know, all the, and then you, you kind of, we kind of make you weigh it on a scale. So how true, so then then you find, what would you rather believe instead? That it wasn't my fault, that I'm lovable, that I am a good person. I did nothing wrong, you know, whatever it is. And how true does, does the positive belief feel to you right now on a scale of one to seven? Oh, it doesn't feel true at all. Right. And so then you kind of bring up the, you bring up the memory and the image that goes with the memory, you bring up the, the negative words, I'm shameful. And then you follow my fingers and I do this and you follow my fingers with your eyes. Then I stop and I say, what are you getting or what's happening for you? And usually you just stop like a, 
like you're on a train passing through the station and the train stops, what are you seeing? Or what are you experiencing? What are you noticing? I feel cold. It can be, I feel cold. I'm picturing my mother's angry face. I see, I see myself and I'm small and the whole world is big around me. I, I am anxious. My heart's racing. You know, it can be one thing. Go with that. And you keep going and, and it changes. The images start to change and, you know, ideally the images start to change and you start to feel less anxious or different pictures come, you know, there's someone with me. I'm big now. He's small. I'm looking and I'm realizing how little I was. I'm an adult now and I can see myself and I was so small how could it have been my fault? And it's like the the locked in, you know, the negative beliefs that are locked into your neural network. I'm dirty, I'm shameful, whatever it is that's locked in there. It's like the neural network as we're processing, it starts to open up and it can be replaced with adaptive information. I was only a child. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my fault. I deserved to be protected. I deserved a hug. I deserved love. And then it, it starts to release and, you know, then when you're done, ideally, so like, how true does that, that belief, I am lovable feel to you now on a scale of one to seven? Oh, seven, definitely. And, you know, we also look at the level of disturbance in your body mm-hmm. and the, the level of disturbance should go down to a total zero when you look back at the trauma. So what you've done with the processing is turn the trauma into a normal memory so that you're able to say that was a really horrible thing that happened to me as opposed to reliving it. And with EMDR, you're not dissociating. You're able to look at a memory and say, boy, that really sucks. So you're not erasing what happened. It's not hypnosis. It's about the belief about yourself. I am worthy. I'm valid. I'm not to blame because trauma, trauma really shapes your, your brain. Trauma teaches you to believe something horrible about yourself. It it teaches you to believe that you are your trauma. Yeah. No, no. You you didn't even give a like fast and dirty version. You gave a really (laughs) well-developed version. No, it makes sense. Yeah. And I have, and Dion, I have worked with people who've been sexually molested and, you know, usually these are people I've been in long-term therapy with. And we say, hey, let's stop for a minute. Let's stop therapy for a bit and do a session or two of the MDR. And we have been able to kind of remove the trauma of the MDR in a few sessions and then go back to regular talk therapy. Because yeah. when you're doing EMDR, your therapist isn't making connections. And that's the hardest thing to learn as a therapist doing EMDR. When someone says, I'm feeling cold, I see her angry face. It's very difficult as a therapist not to say, so tell me more about that. What's it like for you to, to see it? You just don't. And, you know, I'm sure your therapist also, you went to a different practitioner, you know, not your therapist. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Lisa. And I want to hear, really, I want to hear the passage because it was, I don't know, again, you're, your book was very cathartic for you, but it also kind of, it was definitely cathartic for the reader. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear that mm-hmm. passage where you talk about 
your your EMDR experience. Sure. So this is from the second chapter. It's called Borrowing History. And I guess I can just start our actual experience. So the EMDR practitioner would tell me to think of a traumatic event and then follow the pencil she was holding with my eyes. That's how we spent the session, not discussing the details of every trauma the way I did in psychotherapy. I would just bring the event to mind and she would move the pencil while I trailed it with my gaze. We did this with the episode of incest. We did this with my being left alone for hours after a football game in the middle of a cornfield when I was nine, with the murder of my neighbor that same year, with the college rape. We did it with my high school graduation. My abuser was the only person in my family who attended. The practitioner asked me to rate my discomfort around each recalled incident on a scale from one to 10. Incest, 10. Abandonment, 10. Murder, eight. Rape, nine. After I followed the pencil, things that had started out at 10 dropped down to four or five. By the end of our session, something had shifted. I felt subtly but sustainably different. It wasn't a new feeling though, it was old, it was primal. It was the feeling I had when I was little, lying in the grass, staring at the clouds, or twirling a buttercup between my fingers, kneeling in my first church, our yard. It was that feeling, fresh and awake and full of wonder. A child wakes up over and over again and notices that she's living, Annie Dillard wrote into Fashion a Text. I'd woken up so many times there in the woods that dotted our neighborhood, the honeysuckle bush at the end of our block where I had my first kiss, and now again. I began observing everything for the sake of observing, as opposed to surveying and appraising. The clear late summer sky, the practitioner's hair, which matched her eyes and her affect, flat and dull but it didn't matter because I was no longer flatlining. No more whiplash, no more bracing, no more clinching, no more driving down a severely potholed road on high alert. EMDR would not inoculate me against new or repeated trauma, but in just a couple of sessions, I could go back there without getting stuck there. I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Reading that. Yeah, that's all. Yes, reading that kind of for me just brought up all the times I watched my my daughter suffer through flashbacks, through dissociative episodes, through nightmares, and and then watching her blossom as a result of receiving not only psychotherapy and and you know EMDR but group therapy just all the ways that therapy helped her to to move into a, a more profound space and more into a space of herself where she could smile again and where she could see her own value. And I was like in tears when I read that because I was like, I'm so glad Dion got to this place. I'm so glad she was able to get to this place because Everyone deserves to, to be a child, even in their adulthood. Everyone deserves that sense of wonder. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. You wrote that the implications that you didn't know about sex when, 
when you were abused at age seven, but your best friend who was a little older than you, she told you all about these things and you were left with the implications of what I've done weighed on me daily. I think I did, I didn't think of it as an act of violence perpetuated or perpetrated against me, but rather as a sin that I had unwittingly and, and I'll stop there. And I, I was kind of like taken aback by that, by that insight. And I have this thing I do with words because, well, I'm a logophile. And I went in and I put in trauma into Google Translate and I wanted to see what it would translate into from one of the Bantu languages. Hmm. And so I, I chose, and I never pronounced this right, but it's the clicking one with the X. H-O-S-A. And, and it says, to sin, one who causes trauma is one who sins, to, to give a sin. And then I put it in Yoruba, and it says, to curse. To cause trauma is to curse someone. And I thought to myself down here, when, when I was reading that, that you thought it was your sin and that it was your curse and how important it is the words we tell ourselves and the words we accept from others when thinking about who we are and what has happened to us. And then I thought about religion. You run the gambit here in your, in your <laughs> memoir <laughs> with religion. And that one line that said, I finally had to just admit I am not a Christian. I was like, oh, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do was to tell my mom, hi, mom, I'm not a Christian anymore. Yeah. That was really hard. Is religion, this is going to be a weird question. But for me, I, I always feel like religion favors the person doing the harm more so mm -hmm. than it does the one being harmed. Like organized religion tends to favor those who are doing the harm versus those That's who really interesting. are being harmed. It was it was one of those reasons I was like, I can't, I can't follow this anymore. It doesn't sit well with my spirit. And so you went looking and searching beyond in your your religion for something that would make more sense. And so how does it all play into the religion, the, the mental health, the victimization, the blame, all of it, the guilt, thinking it was your sin, your curse? How how was the journey to you you a a helpful one or a difficult one? Yeah, I you know, I think you know, it's been um expansive and it does the UU does feel like a, a a home to me it was hard to leave the church home that I'd grown up in because it was very nurturing in so many ways mm -hmm. particularly it was really important to me to be a member of a black church because I was so often kind of meant to feel like I wasn't really black 
there was so much about the church that I loved. There were still parts of it that did feel very, Mm -hmm. um, very nourishing. So yeah, it was very difficult to finally accept that I am not a Trinitarian. I do not believe in the Trinity. Uh, It was so, so hard. But on the flip side, it has been a wonderful exploration of many faiths. Mm -hmm. And had I been introduced to womanism, I would maybe have found a solace that I could have stayed, (laughs) you know, a Christian Mm -hmm. So yeah, it it was hard. And sometimes it's still hard, but I also believe in being honest. And if I can't be honest with myself on this most important thing, then I don't know what I'm doing, you know? So Right, right. So um, but also kind of liberating to just hmm. be like, you know what, this isn't really working for me. Yeah. I was sort of brought up to turn the other cheek and to forgive. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with forgiveness, but what I must do first is remember, you know, and recover and forgiveness can come later after I've tended to myself and my Mm -hmm. wholeness and my wellness. I can't speak to all Christianity, but, but in what I was raised (laughs) and what I was learning it was important to not bring shame, you know, mm-hmm. and to forgive. And we were to think of men, you know, and and yeah. and how to help them, <laughs> even if that was at our own expense. I'm just saying that that was was some of my experience, mm-hmm. um, just growing up in my you know in my house. Mm-hmm. The message I got is that you know, the men were to be tended to and to be taken care of. Yes. And not to be spoken ill of. Yes. Yes. I, and and I think growing up in a Black Southern Baptist church, mm-hmm. same principle, right? We, we just, we're just a little louder than the Methodist. So for me, again, this is just Alishana's opinion institutions such as religion tend to toe the line of patriarchy and and oppression in a lot of ways for women. Lisa, I'm asking you, is there a way to find your space in organized, institutionalized religion and maintain your own sense of of sovereignty as a woman? Well, so... Speaking as a mental health professional, you know, I can only speak to what I've seen. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, I just, organized religion is not part of my life. It was not part of my upbringing, you know, culturally, you know, growing up in New York, child of a, of a black father and a white Jewish mom, there's Jewishness and Judaism 
and the two overlap, but they're also two different things. Like one mm -hmm. is more, I feel like Judaism is the ethnic identity, the culture, the history, the sense of humor, the stuff, as opposed to Hebrew prayer, the religious traditions. So from my own perspective, you know, I always think of like, wow, church and wouldn't have been cool. So that that's my personal, but I think to answer your question, Dion, I've known you for a really long time, but I didn't know about your experience with religion and how important, you know, AME was to you and how important understanding the meaning of religion to your, your ancestors, you know, the, whether it's an African Methodist, Episcopal or Methodist or the white church or the what, like there was so much that had to do with your family's history. And it sounds like you grew up immersed in it and you were able to, to critically think and feel like well, what's not right for me. So I think having the courage to branch out and explore, and mm -hmm. I've known so many people who have left churches and rejoined churches and seeking people first and foremost, and then what it stands for almost as a second. Who am I surrounded by? Am I surrounded by people I feel safe around? And it sounds like both of you have experienced the value of, of church and religion, but also experienced a lack of being centered in these places. And it sounds like, Dion, what you've sort of done is sought a place where you felt centered. And I and I have worked with women who have moved to through through kind of Christianity to Buddhism to sort of like almost a, a yoga informed collective where they could be spiritual and true to themselves. Yeah. So yeah. So I think the the searching and the exploration I think that we all do in very different ways. Good. Very good. I am so thankful that you were able to come and join us, Lisa, on this, because I did want to make sure that we had, mm -hmm. you know, accurate mental health information going out. Because again, this is my first memoir, and, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to approach it in any way other than, you know, the best way for, for the writer and for the listeners. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been an um, honor. So thank you for inviting me to to share this. Yeah, you, you're awesome. Beyond anything you want to say to Lisa before we let her get back to her busy day? Because I know I want, you're busy. Yeah, I want to yeah. thank you so much. It was so um, oh my gosh. nice and very supportive to have you here. So oh, absolutely my pleasure. Okay, we got to do that coffee this summer. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Lisa, thanks so much. Well, I'm so glad to be here. And it was an honor, Dion and Ella. Thank you. And I'm going to sign off. Take Lisa. care, you both. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. thinking if it's okay to add one more thing about my religious journey. Yeah, of course. Because I, I don't know that I was done with the religion. I wanted to segue into that. So yeah, I would love to hear what else you had to say. I was thinking that, you know, that since going to 12-step programs when I was 21, since then it shifted from looking for religion to just looking for a spiritual home, which is a little mm -hmm. bit different. 
And like, that's like one of the first things that they encourage you to do. Cause I feel like that gave me permission to hold close to myself, anything that I'd grown up with that did work and Mm -hmm. felt, you know, restorative to me while also expanding into other traditions. I've been very excited to connect with African indigenous traditions. And I'm I'm a beginner, but I'm loving I'm I'm loving doing that. So and I yeah, I feel like that is definitely a result of of my AA journey, <laughs> my twelve step journey. I I love that, and and thank you for bringing that up. I mean, gosh, you are really young, and you've had so much happen in the earlier part of your life. And I know you're saying, no, this body's fifty three. You're really young. You're really young. Feeling old, but <laughs> I I tell everyone, oh, I'm infinite but this body that I'm in is 48 and it's that's relatively young but to endure so much trauma in the earlier half of your life you spoke of epigenetics a little bit at the end and I am just kind of enamored with this whole concept of epigenetics. I, like, I didn't even know that was a word prior to, I think last year on TikTok where everybody started talking about, we carry all of our ancestors, you know, wounds and all this other stuff. And so this thought of epigenetics and carrying information from our ancestors in our DNA that informs who we are and how we move in the world Today, you've done the research. You have knowledge of some of your ancestors' experiences. How do you see that showing up in your choices and how you move with regards to relationships, religion, child all of it? How do you see that? manifesting in your life yeah i i definitely see this spiritual quest this desire to be connected to you know something divine Mm -hmm. as, as a as an inheritance absolutely definitely from you know the black women in my family but it also seems like from the white men as well because I did find a lot of, you know, writings that, you know, um, my third great grandfather kept about his quests, really wanting to, you know, he switched religions, all sorts of things. So I feel like that's an inheritance from Mm -hmm. both sides. And also I guess, though, very strongly, I do feel that, though, from my great-great-grandmother, Tempe, just because so many of other people's references about her were about her, you know, religious life. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that feels very comforting, you know, <laughs> to know that this is a, 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 a line. Guess to the writing comes mm -hmm. from this line as well. To find Josephine, my great-grandmother Josephine's writing was super special to me. <laughs> I was, loved that. Oh my gosh, so like... unexpected. But you got, I mean, okay, again, here's the thing. I'm reading through Josephine's missives that she's putting out in, in this, you know, in, in the church magazine. And I'm like, she was a force to be reckoned with. So where you couldn't find That's out anything, anything going on with her, but through her writing, boy, she was on it. And she knew what she wanted. She stated it clearly. Like I just get this image in my head of this woman who's just like, don't try it, okay? Yeah. Don't try it with me and don't try it with the people I love. I just, I, I kind of fell in love with Miss Josephine. I felt the same way that, you know, I mean, those writings, a lot of them, she was like 19, you know, <laughs> and I, that just filled me with so much pride that first mm -hmm. of all, she would take the time to just gather her feelings about God, you know, and write them down. Yes share them and with such you know she was so declarative so that yeah I was I was very proud of that and I did feel like that's definitely an inheritance that I'd like I'd like to have you know mm -hmm. so yeah that was really really precious that was really precious so those were definitely the 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 strong sense of spiritual life and the meaning in writing were the two things that I felt like, okay, this has been handed down. Mm -hmm. and I really appreciate it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm comfortable asking it. You said there's the complicated sexual map we live amid today does have its roots in the past. And so I was thinking about Tempe your great-great-grandmother, who, while enslaved, had absolutely no choice whether or not she would choose to be with the white enslaver. And then afterwards, she, we still don't know if she had a choice. That's right. Whether or not she would be with the, the white enslaver, but we do know that she continued to have children with, for, or by. I love how you say that. And then there's you and Monique. This is interesting because both of you are in interracial marriages. Is this epigenetic? Is this coded in your DNA to, to be with white men as a result of Tempe, either willingly, unwillingly, but also for a very long time engaged in this type of relationship with her white enslaver? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you could say that or else my sisters would have to be married to white men too, you know, or with. So epigenetically, that would not be a connection. Are we looking at just a trait that our ancestors have given us? Oh, yeah, I see. I mean, it was interesting to me, though, as a Black woman who could, you know, consent 
to look at my relationship and starting a family with someone as a person with agency, as opposed to, you know, the way that my family came to be through this, you know, forced interaction. So uh, that did interest me for sure. I want to talk about prior to moving into the audacity of Black women writers. And I'm just going to throw out some talking points and I just want you to say whatever you needed or want to say about it. Okay. This isn't the game, by the way. Okay. The is, this is not <laughs> the game. Okay. It comes last. So this is still, because I'm really, you know, again, it is so much in, in the memoir. So I'm like, I, I, I can't cover it all, but I want to get as much covered as I can. Sure. Let's start with history versus history. So I should just say whatever comes to my mind. Right. In relationship to your memoir. History versus her story. It was, I, I think, so important to tell the story from the perspective of women who'd been enslaved. Mm-hmm. And what that means is sexual violence. Um, so that was the key for me with this was sexual violence against Black women going back to slavery and looking at that through my family's story. Mm-hmm. Wow. Close to that. You wrote, I wanted to know my history that way. I wanted it to anchor and root me, my daughters too. Bring me life, bring us back into our bodies. You talk a lot about being disconnected or numb within or outside of. And I, I think when I was reading it, the the her story of your family was I I felt like it it was embodying, you know, it was empowering to hold on to all of the stories that you had to dig and wade through all of history to get the little tiny bits and pieces that you could snatch and how hard you worked to pull your grandmother's plural possessive stories out from that. Yes. And it, and it was like painstaking, but worth it. Yes? Absolutely. It was absolutely worth it for me. But yeah, you said it. That is absolutely true. I definitely had to go through the dudes to get to <laughs> women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. You know, you whether said it. Yeah. Whether that yeah, was so many times. Or even with in Josephine's case, sometimes through James, her husband. Right. You know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Betrayal. Mm. You know, oh, betrayal. This is so broad. There's the betrayal of family, you know, then mm-hmm. there's the national betrayal. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, there's still no reparations, <laughs> which I find remarkable. And, and yeah, so I guess there's, yeah, the, the familial betrayal that is specific to this, inter, you know, to this trauma 
and then there's the the societal, you know, national, I guess, betrayal that still hasn't really addressed mm -hmm. just what was extracted from Black people in order to create this great land mm -hmm. that don't benefit from <laughs> hardly enough. Yeah. And then I feel like there's still also not enough support amongst each other to mm. really address just how prevalent sexual violence is against mm -hmm. Black women. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, the betrayal happens on so many levels. Definitely. I, I think it speaks to or a massage noir, that term speaks to the betrayal that, that Black women experience. And that's probably the, the worst betrayal is that we're just not protected and we're not seen as worthy of protection and we're not seen as worthy of, of support or any of the things that that other women who are considered softer and more feminine receive. So yeah, betrayal is definitely one of the things that spoke to me. Now you and I have this in common, Oreo. Oh, <laughs> Oreo, black on the outside, one on the inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you said, you know, they, they. why do you talk like that? Why are you listening to Duran Duran? Like, that's like a white girl. Like, when I tell you that is my whole life. And even as an adult, if I've had phone conversations with people and then we meet in person. Yeah. That hurts. It hurts. It hurts when I was a kid. It still hurts today as an adult. This idea of being of not being black enough. Yeah. Same. And I'm like, oh, obviously. But it hurts when I'm told you're not black enough. What about dealing with the publishing industry would send you to a licensed therapist who offered sessions to black writers only? And you said that the characters aren't black enough. Yeah. Speak on that. I'm also a fiction writer and I've definitely written characters and scenarios where other writers, you know, would say that it wasn't believable, you know, mm -hmm. because it didn't read black, you know, and, you know, it's, it's just so small minded and, and it is painful, you know, mm -hmm. that, um, you know, white people are afforded any and all kinds of lives, you know. Right. But Black people are expected to only have a very certain, you know, kind of life. And, right. you know, that, I mean, that annihilates me, you know, that annihilates my experience. That annihilates my experience. So, yeah, so... So that's the kind of thing that has driven me crazy that mm -hmm. I have succumbed to because the person giving the feedback was more successful, you know? 
so I should listen to them. So yeah, that has been the kind of thing that has driven me insane. This idea that somebody knows what it is to be black or how to write black, that there's this, you know, prescription that mm-hmm. I have to follow. That right. Me- that black is a monolith and that's it. Okay. Otherness. Yeah, something that I've probably felt all my life mm-hmm. and that I guess I'm coming to accept is sort of like the natural place that I go <laughs> of feeling other, it, that it's my natural default and saying that I also know that I'm like just one of many. <laughs> so otherness coming to take on a little bit of a different meaning as I'm getting older. Mm. And I've always thought of being considered so different that it was like you are an other thing was kind of a badge of honor Mm. that I was just not ever meant to fit in. I'm not for everyone and that's okay. And it's kind of my my battle cry now. I'm not made to fit in. I was kind of my own acceptance therapy I guess yeah same yeah and I feel like I just kind of gravitate to other people who are kind of in the same place you know exactly and then you realize though I'm not the only other out here let's see I think oh no this is one of my favorite quotes from your book empty spaces have shaped me I was so pretty Coming from someone who's always listening to the words that aren't being said and reading the words that were left out of the sentences, I live in the empty spaces. Yeah. I love the empty spaces. It's quiet there. So what did you mean by that? Yeah, I meant two things. I meant on the one hand, that the absence of information, the absence of seeing myself reflected in our national story shaped mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And I also meant that the that the truth that is behind that <laughs> shapes me. Yes. Uh, and like you said, You know, we know that like when we look at a poem, right, and there's white space on the on the page of a poem, that white space is doing as much work as the actual words that are written. Right. Right. So that quote unquote empty space is also talking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so I think in that way as well, that that empty space that I'm referring to is also talking. Exactly. Yeah. So. That's beautiful. I meant both those things. Your phraseology is ridiculous. Like, like, girl, I can't wait to read your fiction. Your phraseology is ridiculous. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. So this segment is The Audacity of Black Women. And this is where I put on my literary revolutionary boots 
and get to Dolphin because as much progress that has been made, there is no denying that every major institution in this country was founded on white supremacy and the practice of racism. And that even as we were talking about reparations and how there is no getting generational wealth started for Black people who are descendants of the enslaved, the founding families of publishing industry, again, that money was was made from from enslaved folk, and they still have the white-centered approach to publishing. And so the audacity of you, Dionne Ford, a Black woman, to be a writer, traditionally published, and thrive, who told you that you could do that? In an industry that says we need it white centered, and you said no, I need my grandmother's centered in this tale. I mean, you know, honestly, I didn't know if anybody was going to take this book. <laughs> I wrote it because I had to write it, you know. Mm-hmm. But and seeing amazing writers who have kept me company while I've written this book and have given me courage. They told me, Jasmine Ward, Imani Perry, Tayari Jones. She spoke at my daughter's graduation. Oh my gosh. That Oh, that's right. Was she given an honorary degree? She that, was. So reading, you know, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones's reportage And Mm -hmm. then to see that reportage made into a book version, you know, this of the 1619 project that bolstered me and kept me going. Oh my gosh. Like I said, I had to write my book anyway. I was going to write it, (laughs) but to, but to see, you know, these incredible writers having their work properly recognized, you know, that made me feel like, okay, you know, just keep moving, just keep going. Now, this has been something that has stuck in my, stuck in my, in my craw for, I don't know, as long as I've been a person who did anything, the idea of being known as a writer versus being known as a Black writer or being known as a journalist, or Black journalist, a podcaster, Black podcaster, the whole pejorative Black before anything that we create or we engage in. Would you rather not have the Black or would, or do you embrace it? It depends. I embrace it among affinity, you know? Mm. Because uh, I do think it's important when, you know, in this country, we're like only 12% of the pop- population. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for us to be able to have protected spaces, you know? Right, right. But as an industry, you know, I'm a writer, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, I guess it's both, you know, mm-hmm. I in, in appropriate places where we're supporting one another, 
and you know i absolutely love being you know distinguished with other black writers as a as a black writer right um, and i also want that distinction among all writers <laughs> mm -hmm. as a writer <laughs> exactly exactly i think you and i are, are right there um, you know black writer therapy black women writers i love because we do need these spaces but out in the world ella john is just a writer and but that is not something that i think many of us are afforded to just be writers yeah i agree i think that i think that is still true and i do i do often get like nervous about oh you know, if there'll be room for me, do you know? Mm. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like we're sort of burdened with, there's only so much room for so many black writers in a mm -hmm. way that, you know, other groups aren't. <laughs> no, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's kind of the bookstore test, right? You go to the bookstore and it doesn't matter what genre the book is. It's, in the black in the black section the industry needs to be held accountable for relegating writers who are black to these smaller spaces saying and it keeps us from gaining a wider audience i think yeah, yeah. i feel like generally that's that's sadly still the case i feel like some, some strides are being made but i Feel like definitely more work needs to be done for sure yeah yeah and then i always okay. like that it doesn't backslide you know what i mean the ebb and flow of it because it happened like in the 70s and then yeah early 80s now back off and then we had the 90s and early 2000s now back off. and i think we're in a heyday right now especially with pick and historical memoirs and things of that nature and so I'm like just sitting here. <laughs> I need to hurry up and strike while the iron's hot because I know. No, <laughs> yeah. I hear There's a lot and of all of that is trying to be like, oh, okay, they gave them a moment. Now let's wind it back in. That's, but I hope that's not the case. Me too. Writers, writers like you and the other women that I've, I've had the pleasure of, of talking to and I'm including myself in there, like all of our work deserve to be out there and available. I agree. That's like the end of that segment. I don't do a lot of, of hemming and hawing on because this is mostly celebrate you, the writer, and your work. <laughs> you are amazing. Seriously, Dion. I am not one to sunshine of anybody's time parts to make them feel warm and fuzzy that is not my personality <laughs> i had never never have been but you are one of the most interesting persons i've had pleasure to talk to thank you talk with your story moved me in a way that i was not prepared for but i'm grateful for thank you and i found joy and pain and laughter and fears, all the complex, contradictory aspects that make up 
life mm. and wrote it so beautifully. Just thank you for sharing yourself and your experiences. And and I know I sound like I'm getting ready to end the show. I'm not. I'm just like, I'm gushing right now. I I hope that you continue healing in a beautiful way, in a way that allows you to express even more of, of you, not you, the body that's 53, but you, the infinite self that is forever. So I am sending you Karuna, lots and lots and lots of Karuna. Thank you. Um, taking it. <laughs> yes. And for those who may not know what Karuna is, Sanskrit for compassion and mercy, for first and foremost for yourself, and then obviously to share with others. Thank um, you. Okay. I'm done gushing. It's time to play the game. Okay. All right. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. It's the same. You all make a living with words. And then a game with words. I don't know if I want to do this. The pressure. The pressure. <laughs> There's no pressure. So you have the rules, but I will reiterate. I'm going to take uh, five words based on the word story, right? Because this game is called Tell the Whole Story. And you will give a personal anecdotal story couple lines and they will need to fall under hashtag book it hashtag writer's life or hashtag writing wow black okay so after you tell the little anecdote make sure you give a hashtag okay are you ready i think so oh my gosh yeah okay so i'm ready fun. okay your first word is scariest. What is it? Scariest. I can't. I'm sorry. I'm not hearing right. Scariest. Like the scariest thing that you oh, ever. Scariest. Yes. Scariest. <laughs> yes. Look, I started saying it so much. And I was like, am I saying it wrong? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, scariest. Okay. Scariest. So, okay, scariest, huh? All right, here's the scariest. I had okay. an editor who was reading my manuscript and they were giving me feedback, editing, mm -hmm. and they got to a part of the story and they said, oh, you should really talk about this when you talk about this other thing that happened with your kid, it shouldn't be so far away. You know, it's like chapters have gone by. But in reality, the thing that I was talking about had only happened like two paragraphs before. <laughs> so I got kind of scared. <laughs> like, is this person actually reading <laughs> my book? What is happening? That was my scariest editing experience because it felt like... There was a huge disconnect in how they were reading it. Hashtag the writing life. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, that is scary. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> okay. Your second word is taboo. Taboo. 
Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Taboo. So I was once in a lovely writing group with some wonderful people. And I shared the story about my daughter saying that she was black on the inside because she'd been in my belly and how I wanted to write about it and how, you know, it was upsetting, you know, but that mm -hmm. I was still committed to writing about it. And one person was very upset with how upset that I was and just felt like I was making a big deal because it made them uncomfortable. I think that's mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. there were all of that. There could be these, these tensions around race between me and my child made this mm -hmm. person very uncomfortable. And for a minute, I doubted myself because this person had a lot more experience writing and publishing than I did. And then I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do what I need to do. And that essay was published and actually gave me a lot of confidence in my writing to keep mm -hmm. forward. And so I guess that is hashtag, that could be both hashtag writing life as well as hashtag writing while Black. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Those conversations that you had, that you talked about in, in your book with your daughters where mommy and my little white girl and I was just like I could just see you sitting there like oh no you're not <laughs> but I don't know how do I tell her she's not <laughs> how do I do that but those were really cute very candid was it painful absolutely I mean I felt like I'd done all this work to make sure she was so connected you know mm -hmm. to to my life and my family's life and so that this was not translating was very upsetting but then mm -hmm. i i once i could take back my personal feelings about it because that was really about me right. um, to see that her response was really not it was her her response was really age appropriate that and that this was a total phenotypical mm -hmm. she was having it was not about culture right it was, it was a, literally about her physical appearance love that love that your next word is ownership Ooh, ownership oh man so many stories okay so i think i'll tell just the quick story in my book that was like pivotal for me of I was like feeling like I really needed to stay in the good graces of the family who had like all the archival information, you know, mm -hmm. um, they were the owners and they owned the information. And that's really how I was approaching them. Like they had all the information. So I had to stay in their good graces. And once I finally came to terms with the fact that they might physically possess the information but that they did not own it and mm -hmm. find what I needed about my grandmothers with or without them I felt so free so empowered and then literally 
the information about my grandmother's came. Exactly. Some other source. So I was kind of in a weird way feeding into the power, you know, dynamic mm-hmm. um, by like being so worried about not being able to get what I needed without. Yeah. Yes. That, that was an interesting, I was trying to figure out if I liked, if, if you're talking about the, the guy. Yeah. 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 So I was like trying to feel like it was helpful, is he benevolent or malevolent? And I I put him in, in the category of narcissist, kind of. Like self-important in the guise of helping while also pulling back every time an offer is made. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt about him. I can I can see why. <laughs> and if I have to do a hashtag, I have to do a hashtag, right? Yes. Okay. Hashtag writer's life mm-hmm. and hashtag writing real black. Yes. <laughs> Both. And bookish, because you're just talking and about your bookish. Book. I think that's yes. right. Bookish. Yes. Okay. You're doing good. See? Easy game. <laughs> your your next word is a compound word that I'm gonna call a compound word. Reality check. Ooh, we Oh, darn it. I think the last story I told was a good one for reality check, but (laughs) I'll take another one. You know what? Here's one. When I got to the end of the book Mm -hmm. and I share what happened to my daughter. Yes. That was a reality check because I think that I can read enough, be present enough give them information enough, be open with them so they can tell me everything mm-hmm. that will somehow protect them from reality. Yeah. The reality is one in five black women experience sexual assault in this country. Yeah. And so I can do everything right and still not protect them. Yeah. That was a huge reality check for me because I think I was still operating under this false premise that if I only, then that mm-hmm. would happen to my kid, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that was a huge reality check for me. Yeah. And I'm going to say that that hashtag is also bookish because I think I can gird myself with information. <laughs> mm-hmm read enough and smart enough, get enough information and then give it to my kids, we'll all be good. So I'm yeah. going to call this hashtag bookish <laughs> and hashtag writing while black. Yeah. Yeah, that that epilogue did me in. It did me in. Because I was in the same boat. You know, open, my girls can tell me anything. I don't judge you. You know that. I am da 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 I am the mom that everybody wants as their mom. And then to have my, oh, that, yeah. Yeah. Hashtag, I should put writing and mothering. <laughs> Being a writer mom. Maybe that's another hashtag I need to throw in there. Maybe writer hashtag. mom. Writer mom. Yeah, writer mom. You are on your last word. What? And it starts with a Y. And you know, there's so few words 
that, that's why. So the pickings were slim. Okay. Your last word is yielding. Yielding. Interesting. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yielding. Oh, are you going to stump me on the last one? No, I'm not because you're Dion Ford. <laughs> of course, I'm not going to stump you. Yielding. That is such a great word. Hmm. Okay. The story of yielding. Well, I guess what I'm going to share is actually like after the book. I okay. hope this I hope this encompasses yielding. I'm not sure. So one of the things I have experienced in my life is like sometimes a difficulty in hearing good things mm. and praise. Yes. <laughs> like it, but it's it's you know can be uncomfortable and one of the things that has been really remarkable and and a surprise to me is to receive people's reflections on my mm -hmm. book mm -hmm. and how it has affected them Sometimes people email me. Sometimes people I know who I didn't know. I learn a little bit more about their mm -hmm. story. And I don't know why this came to me with yielding, but there has been something about receiving other people's reflections that has been remarkably moving mm -hmm. and not something that I was expecting. And I am, I am yielding to this, this gift and not, and not pushing it back. Does that make sense? Oh, I love that. I absolutely love moving uh, to the gift of of acceptance, of praise, of receptivity? I guess so, of other people's experience. That's the other thing is that like once, you know, there's the writing a book and then there's publishing a book. And once a book or any real creation, frankly, is outside of you and in a public sphere, it's no longer really yours and people will have their own experience with that. And so I guess when I'm saying this, that it's, this is an extension of that yielding to, the, you know, that this is now not mine entirely mm -hmm. and people have their own experiences with it. And I want to accept that, especially when someone is gracious enough to share their experience. Right. As a right. Healing. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. Oh, hashtag, hmm. hashtag writer's life, writing yeah. book life. <laughs> Bookish. Yes. Book. Yes. Hashtag all of it. You have been great. 
Thank you. Great. You've been smiling this whole time, talking through some extremely difficult things. And I thoroughly enjoyed all of it, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and now you make me want to go find a dance class because I love to dance too. I love it. I love I, it. Yeah. It's it, I think that'll, it is, it is. We have come to the end of your session here at Black Writer Therapy. And I would not be a great unlicensed therapist if I did not give you homework. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. So let's see. Okay. Um, well, I'm thinking of somebody whose book is not actually out, but it will be out really, really soon. So am I, can I do that? Am I allowed yeah, to? Yeah, of course. Okay. Her name is Kim Coleman Foote. And she also is a memoirist. I don't know if that's okay. Oh, and that's she, fine. She you said Kim Coleman? Kim Coleman Foote. F-O-O-T? F-O-O-T-E. E, okay. And she has a book coming out called Coleman Hill. Coleman Hill? Mm-hmm. Coleman Hill. Okay. Okay. Miss Kim Coleman foot with an E. Your writer friend, Miss Dion Ford, has said you'd be great for my couch. So expect to hear from the Black Writer Therapy Podcast team with an invitation to book your session. Thank you yeah. so much. Is there can you tell the people how to how they can connect with you, where they can buy your book? Sure. Anything that's going on with you, what's next for you, Ms. Ford? Absolutely. So I try to keep my events up to date on my website at DionFord.com, which also has a way to connect with me if you like. You can buy my book anywhere books are sold, whether that's your local indie bookstore or Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. And okay. in June, I'm going to Oakland to speak at Coming to the Table, or an organization that brings together descendants of enslaved people and descendants yes. to speak at their national gathering that's in the middle of the month. And then I come back here to my stomping grounds to speak at the Juneteenth celebrations here in my town, Montclair, as yeah. well as my hometown in Morristown, New Jersey. So, um, yeah, I'll be around. Very good. Congratulations on your success. Congratulations on, on everything that is yet to come your way. I am so looking forward to anything else that you will put out there for us to read. If I, if I may ask, could I possibly call on you to be a member of a group therapy session that I will put together at some point in time with other Black women writers and we can sit around and just talk and hang out. Sure. That's whenever. Sounds... Yeah. Very absolutely. good. And we're going to go ahead and sign off. I can let you get back to your day. Thanks for taking time out to speak with me. This was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye, Dion. Thank you for joining me for this session of Black Writer Therapy. Be sure to follow and leave a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 
and keep the conversations going on Instagram using our hashtag Black Writer Therapy. I'm your host and unlicensed therapist, Alishan, reminding you to be kindest to yourself first, always and in all ways. See you guys next week. Bye.